Hello, everyone. This is Pam Moore, director of the New Mexico Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program. I'm also part of the New Mexico Wellbeing Committee, and I'm here to introduce Legal Wellbeing in Action, a podcast series offered by the New Mexico Wellbeing Committee. Last year was the first full year of the Wellbeing Committee at work. In identifying ways to bring well-being education and initiatives to the New Mexico legal community, we created a 2021 campaign called What a Healthy Lawyer Looks Like. 2021 is dedicated to educating the New Mexico legal community on a variety of well-being topics that pertain to work and home life. Our goal is that every judge, lawyer, law student, and legal staff person can find some aspect of their mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual health to improve upon. We strive to educate, encourage, and support the New Mexico legal community to show up as their best self in all aspects of life, which means we will be covering a wide variety of topics that relate to the whole human self. Thank you for being here today, listening to Legal Wellbeing in Action. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Legal Wellbeing in Action, the podcast series. I am Tanessa Akins, the clinical coordinator for the New Mexico Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program, and I am the host for Legal Wellbeing in Action. Today's episode is about incivility in the legal profession and how it relates to our well-being. I'm excited to introduce our two speakers, Justice Chavez and Bill Sleese. Thank you, Justice Chavez and Bill, for being here today. We hope you enjoy. Um, thank you, Pam and Tanessa, for that introduction, and thank you for having us on uh, Legal Wellbeing in Action. Today's episode was originally titled Incivility and Wellbeing, but hopefully we can talk some about civility and well-being. I'm Bill Sleese. I'm the Professional Practice Program Director for the State Bar of New Mexico, and I'm um, extremely pleased to have with me today I'm someone who probably needs no introduction to the bar members, but I'll go ahead and let him introduce himself anyway. Justice Chavez. Good morning, Bill. Uh, I'm Ed Chavez. I've been a lawyer in New Mexico since 1981. I served on the Supreme Court for 15 years, and uh, I retired a couple of years ago. I still have my license, really not actively practicing, but doing a lot of consultation work. Right. Looking yeah, forward I to think- today's discussion. Uh, probably the busiest man I know in retirement, so uh, I'm not sure retirement's the right word. Um, but I do appreciate you joining me today. I, I know it's a incivility or civility in the practice of law and how it intersects with well-being is a topic that you and I have had an opportunity to to spend some time on in the past. We've been fortunate to present to new admittees in New Mexico on this topic and this is really just a continuation, I think, of that discussion. Um, and, and really where I wanna start probably is, is with uh, not a whole lot in terms of stories and, um, and what incivility means. Um, I think we can probably all agree that we've heard plenty on that topic um, and have all gotten the stories and the anecdotes, but it might help to, to just briefly sort of talk uh, generally, uh, Justice, about what it is we are talking about when we when we mention the word incivility, and uh, are we talking about the oh you know let's all get together and sing kumbaya and everything that everyone asks us to do we should accommodate it because you know that's that's what a civil professional lawyer does it doesn't matter what the effect is on the client as long as we're being you know 
nice about uh, the practice of law. That that's what we're talking about. Is that is that what it is? <laughs> not at all. If that's what it, what it was, then uh, we could not be zealous advocates on behalf of our clients. I, I think what we're talking about is is just treating people with respect. It's our system of justice. You, you want to treat people with respect. You want to be courteous, uh, despite what you might think uh, about your opponent or your opponent's client. You still have to be courteous. You can uh, disrespect the deed, but always respect the person. And of course, honesty is key. Uh, our creative professionalism begins with my word is my bond. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, throwing in the towel. We're not talking about um, always playing nice. The, the idea is simply to be honest, respectful, courteous with uh, your opposition. It will benefit you, your clients, and uh, frankly, the justice system. Yeah, and I, I know that um, there was a time when the rules of professional conduct included that word zealous, and, and it's a word you mentioned, um, Justice. And I, 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 at least my observation has been that sometimes zealous is not, uh, shouldn't be the equivalent of zealotry. And I think that's where sometimes people got themselves into trouble. They had this notion that, well, if I'm going to do what's right for my client, I'm going to take every advantage. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a zealot in the worst sense of the word. And, uh, and I've heard the term, in fact, referred to as strategic incivility, where lawyers would use uh, intentional um, baiting behavior or whatever else you might want to call it, just to try to get under the skin uh, of the other lawyer to try to knock them off their game, or maybe even their client. Uh, and, and that's not certainly what we're talking about. I, the, the, uh, rules of professional conduct were changed years ago to take that zealous out of there. Um, not because we shouldn't be advocating staunchly for our clients, but because it was trying to draw that distinction and, and tell lawyers, we don't want you to use strategic incivility. We want you to be good advocates for your clients. But at the same time, uh, we want you to think about how you do that professionally and effectively. Um, and, and when we talk in a few minutes, maybe about costs or the benefits of civility, I think we can talk about how incivility can harm your client, that sort of notion that strategically, I'm, I'm really getting to the other side when in fact, all you're doing is costing yourself and your clients money. And, and, and so really, I think what we're talking about is the more egregious conduct, which we've all heard plenty of. Um, but, but let's, let's get really to where the intersection is. What, what are the costs um, of incivility, at least from your perspective, Justice? I think the, the number one cost is to your client. Um, when I think of incivility, and maybe I shouldn't use the word zealous, but I do think that we have to be advocates on behalf of our clients. But what I'm talking about is don't be hostile, right? Uh, don't provoke people, don't intimidate them, don't lie. Uh, all of those things that, that could be costly, being an obstructionist. If you think that you're doing your client a favor by being an obstructionist, what you're doing is you're running up their costs. Uh, and, and that's one of the expenses that we have it, is it's harmful uh, to the client, definitely, because you're running up their costs. And the odds of you being able to be persuasive is not very good because uh, your focus is being on hostile. Your focus is being on provoking the other side, intimidating the other side, belittling the other side. All of those strategies are designed to try to keep them from working or to instill in them fear or doubt, uh, or just really a, being a distraction to them, and you think you're winning, 
as a result of that. When in fact, time after time, we've learned that that is not the case. Uh, and in fact, if you get in the habit of belittling the other side, then you cannot as a lawyer objectively evaluate your client's case because you cannot objectively evaluate your opponent's case in a way that you can respond uh, effectively. And as a result, your client loses. I think the profession loses as well because you know people want to believe in our system of justice, but if they are a participant, it's usually their only, it's their first case, right? The individual's in court for the first time. And if, if all they meet is hostility and somebody who's belittling them, uh, they lose faith in, in our system of justice. So the justice system fails or uh, suffers as a result of that. And I've got to tell you, I, I, I believe the lawyers themselves uh, also suffer the effects of, of incivility uh, because, I, <laughs> well, have, have you ever seen an angry person's face or a frustrated person's face? I mean, it's right. all wrinkled up and it, that's a heavy burden to carry. Anger and hatred are heavy burdens to carry. And so I, I think it affects the emotional well-being of, of the lawyer themselves. Right. And I, I think at least from my perspective, you know, the risk you run, you're, you're so busy. Well, there's two risks. I think you're so busy being strategically uncivil because you think it gives you some advantage. And, and in fact, it's as you said, Justice, what happens is it becomes suddenly not about the case or the merits of the case. In fact, you lose sight of that because you're so busy in these games that you're playing. Um, and, and as you're busy playing those games, especially if the other side is paying any attention to the merits of the case, um, one, you've, you've sort of gotten their attention now um, because uh, of your behavior. And two, if they're focused on the merits while you're focused on the games, um, that has to hurt you and has to hurt your clients in the long run. Um, and, and then the second thing, and I, I love this um, analogy that you use sometimes, Justice, when, when you talk about does it really have an effect um, on the case? You know, you have the perspective of, of someone who was a decision maker uh, having served on the Supreme Court for several years. Um, how does that affect from the side of the bench when you see the lawyers engaging in that kind of behavior, that uncivil conduct, when it becomes about the lawyers and the personalities as opposed to the case? What are the judges and the justices thinking about it when they hear that? And, and if you could maybe share the analogy you use, um, having spent some time in rural New Mexico, um, I, I, think, I think that's a great story. Uh, yeah, actually spending 15 years on the bench and uh, talking not only to my colleagues who listen to oral arguments, but read briefs and talking to the, to the judges throughout the state. I, what has become very apparent to me is, is that uh, when lawyers engage in personal attacks or these uh, uncivil uh, behaviors. It's like static uh, on a radio. You're listening to, to a song, but, but you really can't uh, hear the words of the song because of the static on the radio. You might turn up the volume and guess what gets worse? It's the static. And that's exactly what lawyers do is they detract from the merits of the case uh, because now the judges can't focus on what their argument is. And lawyers have to remember, uh, as they be, appear before judges and juries, words are worth about 7%. You know, like 38% is your tone, uh, etc. But the biggest 
uh, effect of communication is your body language. And when, when you see it on lawyers' faces and you see their fiscal behavior that doesn't match their words, uh, that's what the judges read. That's what the jurors read. And so it's that static that I call static on, on the radio, I think for the younger generation, maybe, maybe it's buffering. Uh, I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, um, judges complain about it all the time. Uh, it just gets nowhere. Have enough confidence in your case as a lawyer to let your good work speak for itself. As soon as you're attacking, you, you've lost the benefit of your good work and Another harm that I had not mentioned, and, and I'm sure you're aware of it, given your prior position, is it damages your reputation. Your reputation is going to walk into any courthouse door or any law firm door well before you do. I don't care if you're a lawyer from Albuquerque and you're going to Rossville to try a case. By the time you get there, the judge is going to know all about your reputation for incivility. And so you, you've started in the hole. So now your client started in the hole. So keep that in mind. Incivility is something that uh, ruins your reputation. And if you think that our 122,000 square mile state uh, doesn't communicate, you're in for a big surprise. Yeah, and you, you talk about static on the radio. And of course, what it does in my mind is what it invites the, the judge or the justice to do is change the station. And of course, in the courtroom, there's two stations. There's a, uh, and so if, if you're busy inviting the court to listen to the other station, what you've done is not only hurt yourself and your client's case, you're actually helping um, the other side showcase the merits of their, of their case. And, and that, that can't be um, really what you want to do. It's certainly not what your client's paying for, which, which actually touches on an interesting issue in my mind. A lot of times I think lawyers say, well, the reason I'm acting this way isn't because that's who I am. Uh, and it's it's not because I'm trying to take an unfair advantage, but you know that's what my client wants. That's that's what my client's paying for. How, how do we respond to that? How do we do we have any obligation to the clients? Um, you know, I think you're exactly right. Eventually, the client wakes up and realizes, wait a minute, uh, what's this charge on my bill for two hours on a motion to compel? Why am I paying for that? You know. It's, but, but what about that notion that, um, you know, until the client actually sees it on the bill, well, that's what they want. So that's what I've got to give them. I think as a lawyer, you better be very careful about the client who wants you to engage in, in intimidation tactics uh, to win their case because they're likely never going to be satisfied, number one. Number two, when they get their bill for all the intimidation and obstruction tactics that you've engaged in at their request, uh, they're not going to want to pay that bill. I think you have to be upfront with your client and you cannot tell your client what they want to hear. You have to be objective in your assessment. And I think you have to tell your client that uh, you're not going to engage in those tactics. I remember uh, back in the practice of law when I would meet with clients and if they would ever suggest to me that they really wanted to put it to, to the other side and, uh, would then get frustrated with me because I seemed to be get along with lawyers when we went to deposition or whatnot. I explained to them, I'm a trial lawyer. I make my living in the courtroom. I make my living with so-and-so uh, <clears throat> who's opposite me. I don't view them as enemies. I view them as adversaries. 
and I will represent you, but I'm not going to engage in, in tactics that uh, to satisfy you that will not get you a favorable result. And so if you're uncomfortable with me as your lawyer, it's a relationship of mutual, mutual trust and respect. You need to find yourself another lawyer. And yeah, I, and I, 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 think, I think the clients eventually learn that, that they're not going to find that lawyer that's going to be uncivil and get them the result that they want. Right. And I, I think the client who continues to insist, I know I, I had similar experiences early on when I moved to a small practice, a two-person practice. And I, I distinctly remember one prospective client because fortunately the red flags were sufficient that we knew better than to take the client. But that's exactly what the client wanted. Um, I, I remember specific words, you know, well, we're take no prisoners, right? So wait a minute, that's, that's not at all the kind of approach to this practice. And you might think that's what you want, client. Uh, but when you start seeing that on your bill and you can't afford that, uh, and then you're unhappy, um, now what? Now you're going to have to start over with somebody else because I'm not, I'm not engaging in those games. I, I'm not sure what it is you're going to want. Fortunately, we sent that client out the door um, or that prospective client. Um, because not only did I see there was going to be an unhappy ending um, with that client, I, I saw what it was going to do to me. And it was something certainly that didn't resonate with me or my personality. And, and to me, I think that's the other piece that, that is um, interesting or, or maybe key. I, I know that um, some lawyers think, well, I'm going to put on my lawyer hat or my lawyer mask, and that's how I'm going to act for purposes of the client. And I'll be tough, hard-nosed, take no prisoners, strategic incivility, all of that stuff. Um, but when I hit, you know, when I hit my front door at night, I'll put that all behind me at, at uh, the office. And maybe some people are good at compartmentalizing, but I'm not sure a lot of people are that good at it. And you can't silo that so well. And so you bring home all of that vitriol when you get into the front door. And now it becomes more than strategic incivility. It starts becoming a defining characteristic. Um, and that has to have a toll on your, um, on your family, on your friends, on your emotional well-being, all of those things. And so I don't, I don't think you can turn that switch off as easily as you think. Um, and so there's a personal cost to it as well. Um, there's some hard costs and uh, there's some studies out there. I would certainly encourage the, um, the listeners to go take a look at an article called The Price of Incivility. It was in the Harvard Business review back in uh, January and February of 2013. It's by a, a couple of individuals, Christine Poreth and Christine Pearson. And uh, they did some research. Now, it wasn't limited to uh, lawyers or just studying lawyers, but they did some research on the effects of incivility. And what they found to me was, was interesting and, and sort of affirmed that anecdotal notion that incivility is bad for you and bad for others. They should they determined that uh, almost 50%, I think it was 48% of people will cut back their work effort after they've experienced incivility in the workplace. 80% lose time when they're at home uh, worrying about um, past behavior, um, past incivility that they've ex experienced in an uncivil event. 30% um, become less creative. 25% will show fewer ideas. And when they do, they're not as quality of an idea. And up to 12% would leave their job. And it wasn't just those individuals, even witnessing incivility, when two others are engaged in uncivil acts with one another, 
even the witnesses would suffer a decrease in their creativity and their productivity. And so I, I think there's hard data that incivility um, can, can really affect your creativity. It can affect your effectiveness, your productivity. And you know, lawyers like to think that, um, well, we know the procedure and we know the law. And so we, we sort of do it in this automatic fashion, but really good lawyering I heard um, early on in my career requires some creativity. And so when you're stifling that, um, by acting in an uncivil manner or being the victim of an uncivil um, event, I think that really hurts you. What about, um, though, the notion that it goes beyond that, that it really affects your, your mental health and your well-being? Um, you know, we've, we talked a few minutes ago about how it might become a defining characteristic. And unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of studies yet on the, um, on the connection between maybe incivility and, and your mental health and your well-being. But from your perspective, Justice, there has to be some connection, doesn't there? The Solutions Group, the State Bar of New Mexico's EAP provider, offers confidential and free professional counselors to support employees and their direct family members by offering short-term counseling, assessment, and referrals for any life struggle. This includes drug addiction, relationship conflict, anxiety, depression, and grief and loss. Other services include dependent care, crisis assessment, intervention, and educational presentations, free well-being webinars, and an online stress assessment tool. Call 505-254-3555 or 1-866-254-3555 and identify with NMJ Lab to schedule an appointment or video visit. I, I can't see how there would not be any connection. It, it seems to me that uh, if you're engaged in a pattern and a practice of uh, wanting to be hostile toward the other side, uh, wanting to provoke them, wanting to accuse them, uh, things of that nature, where your focus is always negative energy, I can't imagine that that doesn't impact not only your personal well-being, but the well-being of your family. Can't imagine you going home uh, and, as you say, turning off the switch. And then what we haven't talked about is basically the staff. And I think the statistics, as you were uh, telling us about the statistics and the cost of incivility, I'm thinking about the staff. If your pattern and practice is incivility toward lawyers and opponents, I got to imagine that you're putting a lot of pressure on your staff and you're stifling their, their creativity, um, their desire to work for you is, is not what it was when they first signed up. Yeah, so all, all those things have to affect you. And if it's not disturbing your sleep, you're in trouble. <laughs> right, and, and, and I think it's not just even really the, the image of the profession and, and how it disturbs you. You know, it, it gets bad enough, I think, that you see lawyers leaving the profession or at least thinking about leaving the profession. I know, um, you know, now 30 or so years later, my, my memory's a little softened and dulled, but I know early on in my career, I ran into a lawyer who routinely used what in retrospect, I think was uh, some pretty sharp behavior, at least from my perspective. Um, and I would, I would spend time after the encounters just pining about it and thinking about it and ruminating about it and laying awake thinking about it. And if I knew I was gonna to have to interact with the lawyer, I'd feel a physical knot in my stomach. 
Uh, and there were times I'm confident that I wondered if this was the right profession for me because that's, you know, if that's what I'm going to have to put up with now. Fortunately, I found a way to navigate through it with uh, that lawyer, and I used some self-deprecating humor to to help with it. I, I ended up telling the lawyer that I thought the lawyer was causing me to be hypertensive, that uh, I was convinced the lawyer was a carrier of the hypertension. But uh, um, And that, that sort of cut through the the issue and, and we ultimately established a, a, actually a very good relationship. The lawyer dropped the, the behavior and, and in fact became somewhat of a mentor and I learned a lot of good things about practicing law. Um, but it would have been unfortunate if our relationship continued down that path and, and either I didn't wanna work with the lawyer or didn't wanna work at all. But I, I think um, there are cases, reported cases where lawyers change um, at least the focus of their practice uh, as a result of engaging in what they perceive to be uncivil, unprofessional behavior, it definitely takes a toll on their well-being. So, so we know about the problem, and we we know that it's it's potentially damaging, and and necessarily must be damaging to our well-being, our emotional well-being, um, our our physical and mental health. But what do we do about it? Um, are there solutions, or it's just you know we work in a rough and tumble profession? This is this is an adversarial profession. We're supposed to be our clients' champions. Let's let's pick up the lance and charge down the field. And if you know people get hurt, well, that's what happens in the in the practice of law on the battlefield. Um, I mean, I'll tell you my own perspective. We've that's the place to start. We have to stop that mentality of this is how it should be. Let's get a thicker skin. Um, but what else can we do? I, I know you you talk a little bit about the idea of um, lawyers having a more personal connection. Tell us a little about that. Uh, yeah, I, I wanna share, hope you don't mind, I wanna share one story with you about a young lawyer that I observed in court. I loved reading these this lawyer's briefs. I enjoyed listening to the argument from this lawyer, but there was one day, young lawyer, appeared a public defender, appeared in our court, was arguing the case and struggled with uh, justices' questions. But the justice uh, appeared to be hostile toward the argument. And she quit oral arguments. She no longer uh, wanted to uh, argue before our court. And I remember calling and talking to the lawyer and trying to encourage them that, you know, they have it. And, uh, you know, one, day, one bad day shouldn't define your practice, but uh, the, the hostility they felt, and in, in, I didn't think the justice was being hostile, just being very pointed, <laughs> uh, really discouraged that young lawyer. And I, I spent time traveling the state meeting with young lawyers, and I would hear their stories about how older attorneys uh, affected them and tried to intimidate them. That, that was a tactic that they used, tried, to, and they would belittle them. And that was always a real distraction and concern for them. And so what I told them, and I tell all uh, young lawyers, but I think it's important for any lawyer, I don't care how uh, long you've been a lawyer, is always try to meet, eat, and confer with your opposition. The day you get a complaint in uh, that is your responsibility, or the day that you get an answer in to your complaint, or when you learn that the other lawyer uh, another lawyer is on the case and you don't know them, pick up the phone, call them, 
introduce yourself. And I think that if you can get together and see the whites of each other's eyes and break bread together, it gets very difficult for either side to take things personally and, and begin the personal attacks. And you can, you can be a strong advocate for your client. The other side could be a strong advocate for the client. And then at the end of the case, you can go out to dinner together. And that's the way it ought to be. But I think there's just not enough of people wanting to reach out and have that personal connection. And, and it's not that you have to be best friends, it's that you built mutual respect. And so I think meet, eat, and confer is a great way. And I think lawyers also have to think about what we've become, which is uh, email and texting uh, profession. And we, and we don't think enough about what we're writing and how quickly we hit that send button. And I know you've been, you've been great about uh, explaining how you can keep from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I know that, uh, and for me, it, it started out as a habit because I was so bad about remembering to add attachments uh, before, before the, um, the email programs figured out to remind me, um, I'd send stuff without ever adding the attachment. And so I started putting a delay on my send. And so things would sit in my outbox for five or six minutes. But what I found is it would also allow me to rethink sometimes my tone in those emails. Mm -hmm. And it, it uh, gave me a way to go back because, you know, when I started practice, and, and I'm sure the same is true for you, we used mostly letters. And so you'd write the letter and you'd, you'd, you know, you'd have a proofread. And then maybe if you had an assistant, they would proofread it. And my staff always knew, come to me if my tone was wrong and tell me. Yeah. Um, but with email, you're exactly right. And with text, even worse, right? It's instantaneous. So I, I, I know building in some sort of delay, having a second set of eyes to look at something before it goes out the door, all of those are techniques that I, I use to do what I'd call my tone check or my hatefulness check to make sure that I didn't ratchet things up from where they were. But I also think your suggestion of meet, eat, and confer is 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 just uh, great. And I know I'd heard stories, and I've heard from more than one person that this is true. That there was a federal judge who institutionalized the meet, eat, and confer into orders on occasion. He would instruct lawyers if he sensed that there was a problem uh, to go to to lunch and to talk about anything but the case. And then their sole responsibility when they came back for a status conference was to tell the judge something they learned of a personal nature about the other lawyer. And what it did is it took all of that hostility and ratcheted it down. Because as you said, when you've looked at somebody, when you break bread with them, and now when you know about their kids or that they like to paint or that they're avid fishers, um, all of a sudden it's hard to be really unpleasant and, and difficult with that person. It's similar to that story I, I think I told. Um, when that lawyer I was having issues with suddenly saw me as a person who had a life outside of the law, I think that really helped. Um, and likewise, from my perspective, when I, when I heard that lawyer laughing at what I tried to, to add some levity to the situation, I started seeing that lawyer as a person, as opposed to this, this problem every time I picked up the phone. And I think that went a long way towards, towards a solution for us. Yeah, you know what I think we're talking about? is the golden rule. Right. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That, that's what we're talking about. And sometimes it's uh, easy not to follow that rule when you, you don't make a connection with the other side. Right. 
And so I, I think that's what we're talking about. It's not the golden rule that he who possesses the gold uh, <laughs> runs the show. <laughs> no, and I think you mentioned it at the top. It's that notion of mutual respect, of treating each other with respect, with dignity. Doesn't mean that you forego your client's case. In fact, just the opposite. I think now you're actually focused on the merits of the case instead of the personalities. The other piece I think that occurred to me the more I've thought about it, um, especially when you look at the study that came out in 2017, um, uh, Patrick Krill and, and others did associated with the lawyers' wellness and well-being movement, um, the notion of how uh, lawyers struggle with substance abuse, um, mental health issues, emotional health issues, depression, and some of those things. It started me thinking about the fact that, um, as you said, I think early on, disrespect the deed, not the individual. And, and I think that applies in the context of somebody who might be having a really bad um, personal crisis. And, and what happens is that personal crisis, just as we said, well, it, you can't turn the switch off um, if you're acting in an uncivil, unprofessional manner. Likewise, if you're, I think, expecting or experiencing some sort of personal crisis in your life, that tends to, to roll out into your um, professional life. And now suddenly, um, maybe you become more hostile or your fuse is a little shorter or you're more vitriolic because that personal crisis is affecting you in ways, it's affecting your judgment, maybe even in ways you don't realize. Um, and what it helped me think about was maybe a little bit wider berth, maybe a little more empathy when I realize somebody's acting in an unpleasant manner, rather than judge them as, ah, well, that person's just a jerk. Uh, maybe they're not a jerk. Maybe something's going on with them. Now, it's not necessarily my place to dig into that, but at least to think about a wider berth for them. Yeah, you, you know, if you made that personal connection with, with the other lawyer that has been engaging what you uh, perceive is incivility, it could very well be that that is not their nature, that they have personal issues and maybe a loved one has some serious health issues or whatever. And it's the stressors that pile up on a person that sometimes can change their personality, that can make them a hostile individual. Uh, and so just like I said, you should disrespect the deed, not the person. Uh, the same holds true for uh, the individual who, who may uh, be engaging in incivility. You, you just don't know why they're doing it. And the reason you don't know why is because you haven't taken the time to get to know them. And if you got to know them, then it'd be a lot easier uh, for you to understand or at least tolerate or even help talk them through it. Sometimes people just need a sounding board, somebody to listen to them. And uh, I think that's a great observation on your part that, that just because somebody engages in some questionable practices doesn't mean that that's who they are. Right. And I, and I think for me, you know, always start with the assumption that that's not who they are. And in fact, if it happens early in the relationship, maybe this is just a, a one-off or, or as, as you said, something else is going on. I know uh, I have a, a, a good friend who actually appeared on the other side of cases from me routinely. Um, and I don't honestly, in retrospect, remember what was going on with me at the time. But I remember sending him a couple of really hostile emails. Um, and, uh, and I realized the tone. Yeah, well, I realized the tone shortly afterwards. And there was something going on at home. Um, 
but I had that personal connection that I previously established with him. And when I realized, um, and what I think helped me realize it is I got back a very short um, email, which was unusual. Uh, and so I picked up the phone and called and I said, um, look, I know what I just sent you. And I know that that was not me. Uh, and I, and I apologize. Um, and fortunately we had the personal connection and the first words out of that lawyer's mouth were, yeah, I know that's not you. And, and I know something else is going on. If you want to talk about it, great. If you don't, great. I, I accept your apology. Don't give it another thought, put it behind us and let's move on. Um, and so I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head, that personal connection, especially establishing that early with the other lawyer. And then starting from the standpoint of that's not who that person is, there's something going on. I think that goes a long way towards reducing that and, and allowing for that occasional intemperate moment that we all have. Uh, you know, we're a pretty uh, small legal community when you think about it. Uh, what are we, like 7,000 lawyers? About 75, 7,700, something like that, yep. That's pretty small. But for us not to, to get to, to know one another, and particularly when you are adversaries in a case, uh, or even uh, you know uh, lawyers writing contracts for their clients, uh, surely you can make a connection with one another. It's not su such a big state that, that, that you can't do that. Right. Well, and I, I would say, you know, the, the, the converse is certainly true, at least in my experience, the, the civil relationships that I had with the lawyers I practiced with and the lawyers I practiced against, if, if, if you put those terms in quotes, I mentioned that lawyer I was good friends with that I had that, that moment or two with. Um, I think we were both actually more effective for our clients because we could jettison the, the personalities and the nonsense and focus really in on the case and the merits of the case. And um, when, when that lawyer would tell me what his view of the case was, I knew that was genuine. I could respect it. I could have an honest conversation with that lawyer and my clients about their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, and the lawyer wasn't afraid to tell me, you know, here, I know I'm weak in this area, but here's where my strengths are. And, and I have that same conversation that really helped us focus the case in so that we were, we were talking about the merits. Likewise, the lawyer I mentioned who initially nodded up my stomach became somewhat of a mentor to me um, and, and taught me about effective ways to practice. And so that civility, that relationship we established, that personal connection, I think really made us both um, better lawyers. It certainly made me a better lawyer because it it helped me focus on what I enjoyed about the practice of law, which was the law, the facts, helping the clients, marshalling their case, um, and not spending a lot of time in gamesmanship. Yeah, I, I, th I think that is right. And, and what goes back to objectivity, your, your ability as a lawyer to objectively assess the merits of your client's case and the merits of your opponent's case. Um, we have that saying, right, that is a... a lawyer who has himself as a client has a fool for a client. Well, that's because the client, if they're representing their own interest, they're not objective, right? They, they just can't be, they're too entrenched. Well, what good does it do the, the client to hire a lawyer that's going to be equally as entrenched right. as the client? And so I, I think uh, objectivity, the better lawyers from my perspective are those lawyers who can objectively assess the other side's argument. 
uh, with my law clerks, I, I, I would go in and I would talk to them about the merits of a case and I would be sometimes a devil's advocate. Sometimes I'd be telling them exactly what I thought, but I expected them to respond because in my mind, if I could not articulate the argument that I disagreed with, I didn't understand the argument. And if I didn't understand the argument, I had no business disagreeing with it. So that, that was the whole purpose of that exercise. And I think that holds true for the practice of law. That's something you've got to do as a lawyer. And incivility interferes with that because you're, you're too focused on, on just, I don't care what they have to say. They're nobody to me. Uh, they're losers or whatever your attitude is uh, toward the other side. Right. So, yeah, I, I think uh, incivility brings a lot of consequences. More consequences and benefit to the client. Absolutely. And to the lawyer, because I think at the end of the day, the satisfaction in the practice is diminished significantly. Well, Justice, I appreciate you spending some time with me today. I know you're a, a busy, busy man. As I said, the busiest man I know in retirement. And I didn't uh, want to fall off the face of the earth. That, that <laughs> I don't think you've done that by any means. But uh, very much appreciate it and very much appreciate the opportunity to to spend some time talking about this topic again with you and, um, and how important it is, I think, to, to the practicing bar. So thank you very much. And um, hopefully I'll see you down the road here sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I've always enjoyed uh, conversations with you and breaking bread. One of these days we'll do that again. Absolutely, I look forward to it. All right, take, take care. care. All right. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Wellbeing Committee and the New Mexico Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky eLearn. Intro music is by Gil Flores. The views of the presenters are that of their own and are not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.